My name is Aaron Lewis, and it's my privilege to get to open the Word of God with you this morning for the very first time in this new decade. Welcome to the 20s. Was anyone born in the 1920s? I was going to say, welcome back to the 20s, but I guess there's uh, no one that applies to yet. So we're going to be continuing our series on Jonah, which is titled, Jonah, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. And that title is not something that Taylor nor I came up with on our own. It actually comes straight from the mouth of Jonah himself, after he has entered the mouth of the fish. That is the clear theme of today's message and the book as a whole. Salvation belongs to the Lord. One of the great joys of getting to teach on familiar texts is the fact that the Word of God is alive and active. I've been able to experience that firsthand as I spent the last couple of months reading and rereading this text, praying about it, chewing on it, studying it, listening to other sermons on it. It really is quite an amazing book. So let's pray now that the Holy Spirit would come and bring His Word to life. Holy Spirit, that is just what we ask. We ask that you would come, that you would speak through your word, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, and that you would do the work that only that you can do in our hearts. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Almost anyone who has grown up around the church or ever attended a vacation Bible school as a child has heard the story of Jonah. No doubt when the Lord's sovereignty is shown over a fish that swallows a man and keeps him alive for three days in its stomach, it's going to be a very familiar and uh, easily to remember story. Yet, as I hope you started to realize last week, and I pray will again be hammered home today, the book of Jonah is not about the fish. I repeat, it is not about the fish. Some of you may be familiar with a short comedy sketch called It's Not About the Nail. If you haven't, it's worth watching. I won't spoil the whole thing, but the basis for the sketch is this. There's a couple sitting on a couch, and the lady is speaking, and for about the first 20 seconds or so, you're kind of just getting these artistic camera views, right? You can see her mouth moving, she's talking, and she's discussing this this pain that she's having, just these headaches, this pressure that's localized on her head, And about 20 seconds into the sketch, the camera finally gives you a shot of this poor woman's face, and she does, in fact, have a nail stuck right in the middle of her head. And hilarity then ensues. You'll have to watch it to see the rest. But the woman makes it clear to her always-trying-to-fix-it husband that the issue is not about the nail. And she's right. She tells him very directly, it is not about the nail. So let me offer you the same advice this morning about the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is not about the fish. The fish only appears briefly in two verses, and both times this verse can be found at the very end of a chapter, and it's used by the author as some sort of, like like a narrative aside to let you know how Jonah got from being in the water to being on land. The fish exists in this story to let us know the extraordinary means by which the Lord, through his compassion, not only saved Jonah's life, but then used Jonah to go and take his message of warning to thousands of souls in Nineveh. So, if this book isn't about the fish, 
then what is it about? Well, Taylor got us off to an excellent start last week. So Taylor, thank you for your work. Can I just take a time out and say, Taylor, celebrating five years being on staff this month at ZF, yes. He did a lot of heavy lifting for us last week, and we, I know I speak on behalf of many when I say we're so thankful for your gift of teaching, that you share that with us, and for you and for Kira and the ministry you guys do to our high school students and their families. So we're grateful to have you. And your parents are here as well. So Taylor got us off to a great start. Let's continue our work to answer that question this morning. What is this book about? So let's read the text and allow the Holy Spirit to bring his truth to life. Follow along with me as I read Jonah chapters 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, How they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. 
And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And the book abruptly ends. So what is the book of Jonah about? The more I read this book, the more it started to jump off the page that the God we serve, our Lord and Father, He is a compassionate God. We see it in the ways the Lord speaks to and treats Jonah, despite his hard-heartedness. We see it when the Lord has compassion on the great city of Nineveh, a city full of sinners doing unspeakable things. He gives them a chance to repent, and when they do, he has compassion on them. We shouldn't be surprised that the Lord has acted this way. If you are a Christian, has not God shown you the same compassion? And when we experience the Lord's saving compassion for ourselves, we gladly follow his call to fulfill the Great Commission and go tell the world of the compassion of our great Lord. Our trouble is, though, like Jonah, we are quick to forget the Lord's compassion to us. We see this so clearly in chapters 3 and 4 of Jonah. We see Jonah's heartfelt prayer in chapter 2 prayed from inside the belly of a live fish. And we think, finally, Jonah has had his watershed moment. Now he gets it. He prays those incredible words in chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen, Jonah. Thinking about where, think about where Jonah was when he prayed those words. He was not Dory in Finding Nemo, tumbling around inside the belly of the fish, having the time of his life. He's inside the stomach of a fish big enough to swallow him up. And yet, Jonah sees the truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to Jonah. Jonah doesn't get to decide who is worthy to be saved and who isn't. No, salvation belongs to the Lord alone. And this is echoed elsewhere throughout Scripture. Paul famously says it in Romans 9, that the Lord chooses those upon whom he will have mercy and compassion. And just when it seems that Jonah's heart is changed in chapter 2, we see him stumble again in chapter 4 with this root of jealousy and anger towards God and the people of Nineveh. And this then leads us to what the book of Jonah is really about. It's about the character of God being full of compassion for both sinful, prideful, jealous people like Jonah and for entire cities of sinful people like Nineveh. And when we see how the Lord responds in this text with incredible mercy and compassion, how can we not respond by going and telling others about our God's great love? So let's dive deeper in the text and see, that the, Lord, and see the Lord's compassion and how that, I pray, will compel us to be what we are striving to be at Zionsville Fellowship. Disciples who are, who are a community of worshipers on mission. In this text, we see God's compassion on Nineveh's needs, on Jonah's jealousy, and we see his compassion through the plant's purpose later on in chapter 4. So first, we see the Lord's compassion on Nineveh's needs in chapter 3. Let me give you some historical context about the city of Nineveh. Taylor filled us in on this last week, but in case you missed it or need a refresher, let's review Nineveh was a very large city in the, in the kingdom of Assyria and served as its capital for some time. 
It's located in what is now present-day northern Iraq. And for about 50 years in the 7th century BC, it was the largest city in the entire world. It lay just off the Tigris River and was located strategically between the Mediterranean Sea and the Indian Ocean. Thus, it was a very important junction for a lot of commercial trade, uniting much of the East and the West. So it would be fair to say that Nineveh was a hub for trade, wealth, religion, and cultural influence. The city was known for having a culture of violence. At its height under King Sennacherib, the city grew in prominence as it benefited from conquest of lots of war. Sennacherib's palace had many carvings found on the wall, a lot of them even violent in nature. Not uncommon to see things like impalings being painted on the walls. Other historical sources reference the awful practice of child mutilation and child sacrifice to appease their so-called gods. This was a city marked by paganism and violence, and as I mentioned last week, some might even use the word terrorism. So for Jonah to be sent to Nineveh is significant. This city was a landmark of paganism. It did not know the Lord. It was not seeking to practice the righteousness laid out in God's law. So what then was Nineveh's greatest need? It needed to repent. They needed to hear warning of the Lord's judgment upon those who did not know him. The Lord then does something that has never been seen before. He sends one of his prophets, an Israelite, to the Gentile city of Nineveh to call its residents to repentance. Aside from times of exile, this is the only instance in the Old Testament when a prophet from Israel is sent not to Israelites, but to the Gentiles. It is a remarkable display of the Lord's compassion upon the inhabitants of this great city. And while sending the prophet of Israel to the Gentiles in the Old Testament isn't common, it's not without foundation. Remember, Genesis chapter 12, the Lord says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and through you, through the nation of Israel, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's happening. That's happening through Jonah. Ultimately, of course, that happens most clearly through Jesus. You may have noticed that verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 are almost a word-for-word repeat of chapter 1. After Jonah's fleeing to Tarshish and the time spent in the belly of the fish, the Lord gives Jonah a do-over. This time, he obeys the Lord, and he warns Nineveh of coming judgment. And to hear that message coming from Jonah looked really unlikely after chapter 1, right? And when we get this window into Jonah's heart and anger in chapter 4, we can begin to make some inferences about how Jonah's warning to them in chapter 3 might have gone. Was it because of Jonah's passionate preaching that the people of Nineveh repented? Did he tell them about his time spent in the belly of the fish? Was he vulnerable in sharing how his heart had been hardened toward the Lord and hardened toward them? Did he share his revelation in, from chapter 2, verse 9, that salvation belongs to the Lord? We don't get answers to these questions, but the text seems to indicate that the answers to those questions would most likely be no. Instead, the repentance of this great city that was full of wickedness 
was a gift, a gift from our compassionate God. Their repentance was a gift. The Lord's heart of compassion is confirmed in the last verse of the book. In verse 411, the Lord is speaking to Jonah and rhetorically asks this question, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? In other words, spiritually and morally blind. The answer to that rhetorical question asked by our incredibly compassionate God is, of course, yes. This is the first time we've mentioned the Lord's use of questions, so let's park here for a minute to consider why the Lord's use of questions is significant. The Lord asked Jonah three poignant questions, the last of which we just heard. The other two questions are almost identical. The Lord asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And then again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? I found the fact that the Lord asked Jonah these questions to be one of the most striking elements of the entire book. When I read and reread this text, those questions began to just jump off the page at me. They stand in such contrast to the way Jonah wants the Lord to respond to the people of Nineveh. Jonah is ready to co-sign on the destruction of all the Ninevites. He's ready for them to get what he thinks they deserve. But when the people repent of their wickedness and thousands of souls turn to God and ask him for forgiveness, the prophet of all people is discouraged. Feel the tragic irony here. Finally, a prophet brings warning of coming judgment that the people actually listen to. And what is Jonah's response? He's mad about it. He's angry enough to die. So here's a question. Is Jonah the worst prophet ever? (laughs) If your answer to that question is yes, this is the kind of evidence you would use to build your case. But the Lord's response to Jonah, the prophet of Israel who is acting more out of line than all the pagans in this story, is not one of swift judgment. Now, the Lord again shows his compassion. He responds to Jonah's misplaced anger, and dare I say temper tantrum, with measured patience. He doesn't respond with a direct and condemning rebuke, though he would certainly be just to do so. Instead, he asks Jonah a question to address his heart issue. He asks Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? What a great question. The operative word in that clause is obviously the word well. Do you do well to be angry? The Lord is gently calling Jonah's attention to his misplaced anger. Even in his frustration, I think Jonah knows the answer to that question because any rational person can see what the Lord is driving at through asking it. But Jonah's anger is too strong in the moment for him to admit that his anger is misplaced. He's too upset to admit that at least part of his emotional response should be joy for the Lord's compassion shown to Nineveh. And he's too angry to acknowledge the Lord's compassion toward him, despite his ugly response. It seems, sadly, that Jonah has already forgotten about his experience in the fish. In that moment, Jonah has lost sight of the Lord's saving grace and compassion shown toward him. And as a result, he is unable to then respond with the same grace and compassion towards Nineveh. So, despite Jonah's reaction, 
we see that the Lord has compassion on Nineveh's need, their need to repent. We also see the Lord's compassion on Jonah's jealousy. So let's make some observations about this book and zoom out before we zoom back in and pick things back up. What would happen if the book of Jonah was one chapter shorter? Obviously, the chapter and verse numbers are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let let me ask this question another way. Why is chapter 4 included in this book? If the book ended after Nineveh's repentance in chapter 3, we would have almost basically the entire narrative of Jonah still intact. The only open question would be, well, whatever happened to Jonah? And when we get to the end of chapter 4, that's still not very clearly answered. So let me answer my own question. Why is chapter 4 in this book? It is here to hammer home that while the fish swallowing a man to keep him alive for three days is shocking, and in case you're wondering, I do believe that really happened. Jesus references this in the New Testament. Even though that happened, the Lord's patient and deep compassion on Jonah's troubled heart should give all of us hope for salvation. What we see in chapter 4 is evidence of the Lord's abundant and patient love for his sheep. He is, his pursuit of us, the Lord's pursuit of us is gentle. It is timely. He's overwhelmingly compassionate towards Jonah, even though Jonah's heart is so hardened toward the Lord at this point. So if you have a friend or a loved one for whom you pray often that the Lord would save, be encouraged by the Lord's response to Jonah here. He can save entire cities, as we saw in chapter 3, but he also leaves the 99 to go after the one. Here's another question. Why is Jonah jealous? Why does his jealousy push him to feelings of anger that are so overwhelming that he says to the Lord, it is better for me to die? Why isn't the Lord's prophet joyful that Nineveh repented and was saved? Jonah has become so consumed with his jealousy that he cannot rightly respond to the ways that the Lord is working for the sake of his glory. Let's remember Jonah's background. We read about him elsewhere in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 14. He was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II, who was described as an evil king who reigned in Israel for 41 years. But we get some interesting detail about Jonah in this text. Despite the fact that Jeroboam II didn't lead Israel out of their sin, we do see that the Lord did use this time to give the people of Israel hope. The Lord, speaking through his mouthpiece Jonah, assured Israel that they would not be blotted out from the face of the earth. That's good news, I guess. Perhaps they were a little bit worried about that. He also... uh, he also prophesied that the Lord would restore some of Israel's borders during that time. So this would have made Jonah a pretty popular prophet. Think about all the prophets in the Old Testament. Though they may have been faithful, not very many of them had very good things to say. They were not singing glad tidings of comfort and joy to most people. But Jonah brought a message of hope and he experienced some of the border of Israel that had previously been lost was now being reestablished. So one can see a scenario in which Jonah might have had to fight against the sense of pride, both for himself as a prophet who was bringing good news that did come to happen, 
and feelings of pride for Israel as a nation. Jonah wanted Israel to be restored to its former glory. And then the Lord calls Jonah and he says, I want you to leave Israel where you're popular. And instead, I want you to go to this wicked city, the city of terrorists, of child sacrificers, and tell the people there they need to repent or be destroyed. Jonah doesn't want to see these people be given a chance to repent. No way, Lord. These people don't even deserve a shot. They're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Wipe them off the face of the earth. And when the Lord doesn't immediately carry out his judgment against Nineveh, Jonah is jealous. And his jealousy leads to anger. Jealousy can be defined as resentment against a rival experiencing success. I believe Jonah could have been jealous about a couple of things. First, he had to leave Israel where he would have been likely very highly regarded and respected by the people. He was the one who was experiencing success as a prophet in Israel. But now he would have to leave that environment and go to Nineveh of all places. The second reason Jonah could have been jealous is that he does not want Nineveh to receive or be blessed by the Lord's compassion. He doesn't want Nineveh to receive, he doesn't want them to repent. He doesn't want Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, a rival kingdom, to experience the success of the Lord's compassion and love and forgiveness. And when Nineveh does miraculously repent, it gets really ugly for Jonah. First he flees, then he stubbornly opposes his father's compassion. Does that remind you of anyone else in Scripture? Who flees from his father and then stubbornly opposes the merciful response of the father to the wayward? Bit of a trick question because it's actually one story with two different characters. This pattern of Jonah's response mirrors the prodigal son who flees, but also the indignant older brother who resents the compassion shown by the father when the prodigal son returns back home. Pastor and author Tim Keller preached through Jonah years ago, and his sermons were compiled into a book uh, which is appropriately titled, Jonah, the Prodigal Prophet. I commend it to you and encourage you to read it if you're interested in knowing more. We'll talk more about that point later. That brings us to our third point. We've seen the Lord's compassion on Nineveh's needs, on Jonah's jealousy, and now we're going to see the Lord's compassion on display through the plant's purpose. This is a really important part of the book for three reasons. First, take a moment to look and consider how much time is spent talking about the plant and Jonah's reaction to it. The evangelizing of tens of thousands of Ninevites happens in chapter 3 in 10 verses. Then, in chapter 4, 11 verses are spent talking about Jonah and this plant and his reaction to it. In other words, the plant is important. Secondly, the fact that this exchange is included in the book shows the reader and us today that the Lord is doing more in the book of Jonah than simply sparing the city of Nineveh. He is concerned with both the 99 sheep, Nineveh, and the one sheep who strays, Jonah. And lastly, consider who speaks in the fourth chapter. We see the Lord's comments through his poignant questions that he asks Jonah. So we get to hear from the Lord himself. So let's dive in and make sure we're not missing what the Lord wants us to hear in chapter 4. 
We don't get five words into the chapter until we see just how misplaced Jonah's affections really are. What is his response to Nineveh being spared? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. The Hebrew text, more woodenly translated here, says, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Let that sink in for a moment. What is the word it referring to in that sentence? It refers back to the Lord's relenting of the disaster that was looming for Nineveh if it did not repent. When Jonah realizes that the Lord is not going to wipe Nineveh off the map, Jonah interprets the Lord's merciful actions as instead being evil. We are really getting to see the depths of Jonah's heart. Jonah knows God's character. He knows what God is like. He is not some fresh-faced, just-graduated prophet on his first assignment from the Lord. No, Jonah knows what God's character is like, and yet he wrongly perceives the work of the Lord in Nineveh to be evil. Brothers and sisters, let this be a warning to all of us. Jonah was an Israelite. He knows about God. He knows God's character. He knows about God's faithful deeds to act on behalf of Israel. He was a prophet. But if even a prophet in Israel can have a heart that is overrun by so much anger that it distorts his ability to distinguish compassion from evil, then we too are susceptible to being blinded by our sinful thoughts and desires. That means we can grow up in the church, we can know all the stories of the Bible, and yet be blinded by our sin and find ourselves unable to accurately discern the work that the Lord is doing. I don't bring that up to raise doubts in your heart. Remember, what we're seeing in Jonah is the result of a string of self-rule kind of decisions. Besides the mention of Jonah in 2 Kings, we don't get a description of what's going on in Jonah's life or his heart before the Lord calls him to Nineveh. Yet Jonah's actions to flee and go do the opposite of what the Lord tells him to do, and then to even to tell the sailors to kill him by throwing him over the boat into the sea, when he could have just jumped in himself, it shows that Jonah's heart was not in the right place. People generally don't just suddenly end up in that kind of a position. It's more reasonable to think that Jonah's pattern of disobedient and self-focused decisions throughout this book are preceded by similar patterns. So how does the Lord respond to Jonah's jealousy? He responds with the first of his three questions. Do you do well to be angry? We don't hear Jonah's response, but we know what the right answer is. The answer is no, Jonah. You do not do well to be angry. Then in the closing act of this book, Jonah heads out of the city to the desert to set up shop and watch what is going to happen to the city of Nineveh. And this is when the Lord makes his point to Jonah using the short existence of a plant to highlight Jonah's misplaced affections. The Lord has a plant spring up that grows supernaturally to become this tall, shade-producing umbrella of a plant for, and that gives Jonah comfort while he eats his popcorn and watches what's going to happen to Nineveh. We see in verse 6 the second time in this chapter that the word exceedingly appears. Just as Jonah perceives the Lord's relenting of judgment and wrath 
on the Ninevites to be exceedingly evil, Jonah is now exceedingly glad that this weed has grown up next to him to provide him some shade and comfort while he sits in the desert, which he was not instructed to do, and waits to see if maybe the city gets destroyed, which he's already been told isn't going to happen. The use of the word exceedingly striking because it highlights these feelings that Jonah has as some of the strongest felt in the entire chapter and in the entire book. That's an amazing thought. Consider what we've witnessed so far in this book. We've seen Jonah flee from God, sleep through a squall, be thrown in the sea, be swallowed by a fish, be alive after three days of being inside said fish, be vomited up on the ground, witness tens of thousands of people repent. And yet it is this moment that elicits this strong emotional response from Jonah. He's glad about a plant. Don't you just want to grab Jonah by the shoulders and say, what are you doing? Well, lest any of us think that our own hearts are incapable of being as hardened as Jonah's, I'm reminded of one of my family's favorite stories to share. So at the end of this story, you will see how my lacking in understanding and compassion in my own heart was toward my brother. So let me set the scene. It's a summer day, the sun's shining. My brother and I, two high schoolers at the time, are working together to wash our first car, a pearly white 1992 Ford Taurus. It's a great first car. It's the kind of car that most parents dream about today. It was pretty long, it didn't go fast, and it had a steel-reinforced front bumper. Well, something happened that day that put me, Aaron Lewis, into a unique category of human beings to walk the face of this planet. I have to be in the top 1% of people in the history of the world to have an unobstructed side view of a car entering a garage at an uncomfortably high rate of speed. Few people in the world have seen a car enter a garage that fast. Was my brother going for a Guinness Book of World Record? No. What happened was that he was going to momentarily pull our car into the garage. He was going to pull it in there, vacuum it out. So in doing so, he got in the car, he turned it on, And with one leg hanging out of the car on the driver's side door and one foot on the brake, he shifted into park and pushed down on the brake. But the car started to accelerate. His brain said, I need more brake. So he pushed down harder on the brake. But the car accelerated further. You can probably guess what's going on. He thought his foot was on the brake. But because of the odd way he was sitting with one leg hanging out of the car and one foot inside, his right foot was actually on the gas pedal. So as his brain was saying, slow down, his foot was mistakenly pushing down the accelerator. He suddenly had three choices to make. Behind door number one on the left was the family van, a Chevy Astro van with a black Purdue Pete wheel cover over the full-size spare on the back. Behind door number two, straight ahead, was a wall. Behind that wall was our family room. Behind that was the backyard. (laughs) And behind door number three, which is the door my brother chose, was a steel support beam holding up the second-story bedroom over the garage that was bolted into our concrete floor by four huge bolts. 
The force of the car hitting the support beam sheared off all the bolts and knocked the support beam back a few feet. Now, thankfully, my brother was uninjured, and I did get his permission to share this story today. <laughs> and the second story of our house did not collapse. The support beam was persuaded gently back into place by some strategic swings of a sledgehammer, and the steel-reinforced front bumper of the car, not even dented. <laughs> so here's where this story ties back into Jonah. After witnessing that beautiful, pearly-white Ford Taurus disappear into our garage at an alarming rate of speed, I ran from the front yard into the garage, looked at my bewildered brother, and said this brilliant question, what are you doing? <laughs> what an unhelpful question. What I was calling into question was his motive for almost punching a hole straight through my parents' house. I looked at his action, and I assumed the worst about his motive. Of course he wasn't trying to drive the car through the house. So my question was both unhelpful and it skipped over far more pressing concerns, like my brother's safety and his well-being. And this is where the Lord's compassion to Jonah and to hard-hearted people like me and like you is shown to be in stark contrast to our fallen nature. When Jonah gets exceedingly angry about the plant, the Lord does not grab Jonah by the shoulders and say, what are you doing? The Lord compassionately intervenes with a question to address Jonah's most pressing concern his heart. Jonah is angry because he's jealous. He does not want the Lord to be compassionate to people who are different from him ethnically and politically. He does not want the Lord to be compassionate to people that he thinks are evil and unrighteous. But salvation does not belong to Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And thankfully, the Lord uses the plant's purpose to show Jonah his misplaced affection. And we get this incredible commentary from the Lord himself in the form of this beautiful cliffhanger question to close out the book. The Lord's commentary is this. Jonah, the way you feel so strongly for the plant is the way I feel strong compassion for the lost people of Nineveh. Incredible. The Lord, in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty, uses the plant's purpose, along with these questions, to help Jonah to see God's heart of compassion for the lost. What an amazing reminder for us today from this book that on the surface may have seemed like an old story about a fish. God's word is alive and active. Amen? So let's close by considering some implications. First, if you have been saved by God, then remember just how compassionate God has been to you in gifting you your salvation. Remember how patient he is in calling you, in pursuing you, and in forgiving your sin. Be eternally grateful. Jonah could not get past his own agenda and his self-righteous anger. Why didn't his heart melt when God spared his life and the lives of tens of thousands of people in Nineveh? At least part of that answer is that he forgot the Lord's compassion to him. 
If you're here today and are seeking to know more about who God is and why this weird story about a fish and a plant or even in the Bible, I pray this thought will stick with you. Despite all of Jonah's shortcomings, and they are many, the Lord is still patient and compassionate with him. The Lord's questions are meant to uncover the sin in Jonah's heart so that Jonah may recognize them, repent of them, and find his ultimate joy in living for and serving the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, is a God who pursues sinners like you and me. Second, I mentioned earlier how Jonah is like both sons in the story of the prodigal son. He is the younger son who ran away from the Lord. He is also the older son, the indignant son, who was angry at his father's compassion toward his younger brother's foolish living. There's a lot to unpack here, and I'd encourage you to read that story in Luke again as a refresher. But I'm going to jump straight to the point relevant to us this morning. Jesus' point in telling the story of the prodigal son was that we should rejoice in our salvation and in the salvation of others around us. The father in the story says, It is fitting to celebrate because this son of mine was dead and now he is alive. That's so true. So here's something I'd like to challenge you, all of you, to do this week. Think of a brother or sister in Christ whom you love and let them know this week how thankful you are for their salvation. Then, don't stop there. Consider if there's a person toward whom you don't feel love. Maybe it's one person, maybe it's multiple people that you'd rather not spend time even thinking about. What would happen if we asked ourselves the same question that the Lord asked Jonah? Do you do well to be angry? Should the Lord not pity them as well? In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Loving those who cause you difficulty is not just a nice resolution for 2020. It is a commandment from Christ himself. Our last implication is this. Jesus is the better Jonah. He's the best Jonah. All the ways that Jonah falls short, Jesus raises the bar. Jonah didn't want to leave what he had going on in Israel. Jesus left the throne room of God to be a man, live a sinless life, and then be persecuted, humiliated, beaten, crucified. And he knew all that was going to happen in advance. Jonah fled away from the people he was supposed to help. He wanted to drown instead of share the warning of coming judgment upon people who were guilty of great sin. Jesus gladly drank the cup of wrath that was meant for us, even though he was guilty of no sin. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God to give you and me the chance to be reconciled to the Father. It cost Jesus a lot to help us, and yet he did so willingly and joyfully. Jonah wanted to see sinners get crushed. Jesus was crushed so that sinners like us could be saved. The list goes on and on. Here's the point. The God of Jonah, the God of Israel, 
Yahweh is a compassionate God. And no action was more compassionate than to be willing to sacrifice his own son on the cross for sins that his son did not commit. Jesus' parting words to his disciples spell out for us how we should respond to God's generous compassion. We are called to go and make disciples of all nations, sharing with our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, our loved ones, the great news of hope for sinners like us. And so, like the book of Jonah, I'm going to end with a question. Whose salvation are you praying for in 2020? And what role will the Lord have you play in that person's life to show them God's compassion? Let's pray. Father, we pray and thank you for your word. We thank you for this example of your compassion toward Jonah. Help us, Father, to not think of all the ways that we are so different from Jonah. Help us instead to see our sin that we need to repent of, our anger. Help us to see people who need to receive your salvation. And help us to be compassionate like you are compassionate. Help our hearts to love and to care for the things that you care about most. Please do these things in our lives so that we may be made more and more like your Son and bring you more and more glory through the ways in which we live our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. May the Lord's compassion cause our hearts to overflow with the unrivaled joy of seeing others be saved by faith, through Christ alone. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.